Please rise for the reading of God's Word from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Hear now God's Word. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts, exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. The year of our Lord, 2020, has been a revealing and challenging year, and of course, it's not over yet. While this isn't the first mess that our country has been in, nevertheless, there seems to be quite the swirl of uncertainty, which certainly can be unnerving. However, we should always remember that things are never uncertain with God and that he, and he alone, is our refuge and our strength. We will be voting for new national leaders within the next month. Let me urge you not to neglect this privilege and duty to exercise your influence for Christ's sake, but let me also be clear that we are not pinning our hopes on the next election, but rather upon King Jesus. He is the King of Kings. And on November the 4th, the day after the national election, Jesus Christ will still be on his throne and he will still possess all authority in heaven and on earth. As I was thinking about this in preparation for this text, let me make this case in point here. How did Christendom advance and conquer the Western world? as well as many other places. For the Christian church, Pentecost marks the beginning of a powerful shift toward putting the world right side up, even though the early Christians were accused of turning the world upside down. What drove them? What empowered them and enabled them? And not just them, but the Christians throughout the centuries who have transformed entire cultures. A hundred years after Christ was nailed to the cross and he rose from the dead, the gospel had already spread throughout the whole earth, and in the first centuries, first few centuries, an obscure minority sect, illegal sect at that, changed the world. How did they do this? How did they undermine the Hellenistic and Roman cultures? Well, let me begin by telling you how they didn't do it. They didn't get out the vote. They did not elect a godly emperor or governor, at least not for a very long time. They put no confidence in princes or the flesh. So I think you should vote between now and November the 3rd and then immediately return to the more important work of advancing God's kingdom. And remember what Daniel observed. 
Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Amen. Now then, we can relax about the election, but we better not relax when it comes to the kingdom work. Our focus must be on how to become more familiar with our weapons of warfare and way more skilled in their application. So let's get some context to our passage today here. His statement here in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. In Ephesus, Paul, and what was called early on, instead of being called Christians, uh, that'll come in a bit, but they were called the way. I like that. And so the way and Paul had faced major opposition at Ephesus. And in fact, Paul had been forced out of the city. And so it was, it was a very strong uh, opposition. He was in, his life was in danger. And so he leaves Ephesus, he's having been forced out, and he goes for, to Macedonia. Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, and it says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, Macedonia our bodies had no rest. They were exhausted physically, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul meets up with Titus in Macedonia, whom he had sent to the Corinthian church to see, uh, to, so that he could address the trouble and the strife and the division that was severing that church into pieces. And you know, the, I would remind you, sometimes I hear people, and I remember thinking this way, that the New Testament church was kind of this ideal, utopian community and society. But in fact, the New Testament church was an infant church it was small, it was full of all kinds of trouble. Titus now has come, Paul has sent him there to evaluate the situation in Corinth, and now he has come back to report to Paul, and Paul says, I was really encouraged. I was exhausted physically and, and, and mentally, and here he came with this report, and I was quite encouraged by it. It was very helpful. Actually, T Titus gave Paul a mixed report. There was Plenty of good news, but there was also some bad news. So as the apostle wrote to the Corinthians in this second letter, in chapters 1 through 7, he is encouraged and he praises them for the progress that they've made. You'll recall in, in 1 Corinthians that there had been all kinds of problems Paul addressed there, so now he sees progress. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he talks about the collection that he was taking up and now we come to the 10th chapter, and from there to the end, we're going to feel a little bit of tension. This is because he is now going to address the bad news that he has received from Titus's report. Within the church at Corinth, there was a faction of critics who were questioning the preaching 
and the teaching and even the authority of the Apostle Paul. Accusing him, among other things, of being a weak, uh, of being weak and of being a poor preacher. So the rest of the letter has this as the background and the context. And in fact, Paul is defending his apostleship. In the midst of this, he will give us uh, these powerful and memorable verses that we've read this morning uh, that, that uh, will, as Paul often does in the midst of addressing one thing, he gets sidetracked, uh, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with some pretty glorious uh, rabbits that he chases that are certainly applicable to what he's saying, but he gets caught up in it, and, and we should as well. He was answering his critics and admitting that he, like the rest of us, was just a mortal man. Nevertheless, our warfare, he says, is according to the mighty spiritual weapons that God has placed in our hands. You don't have to be personally powerful to be used by a mighty God. And so... We are, we're attracting, uh, excuse me, we are attacking, he says, great fortresses, but we are doing it by the power of God. As, as a young David declared to the armies of the Philistines and their great warrior Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, uh, then David said to the Philistine, there on the battlefield, this teenage boy with no armor on, nothing but a slingshot, a few stones, The armies of Israel had been trembling before the armies of the Philistines, particularly before Goliath, this great warrior. And here's what David says to the Philistine, to Goliath, You come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, in the the name of Jehovah of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day Jehovah will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beast of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that Jehovah does not save with sword or spear, I guess we could add, or vote, For the battle is Jehovah's, and he will give you into our hands. Likewise, Paul speaks of the pulling down of great fortresses, the strongholds, and the casting down of every high thing. You might remember just a few weeks ago or a few months ago as I preached uh, uh, from Numbers chapter 33, Uh, And here's what we read in Numbers 33. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroying all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. This is the same kind of things Paul's talking about when he talks about casting down strongholds or the the high places. 
It's true that Christians may appear to be weak, full of weakness and the gentleness of Christ. This is how Paul opened this chapter, by the way, in, in, chapter, in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. He says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, in whose presence I am lowly among you. So we have this kind of paradox, this gentleness and meekness of Christ and this weakness of Paul set over against this command to go out and conquer, to pull down high places. But don't be fooled by this weakness. Behind this outward weakness is a man that is fully engaged in warfare. Paul isn't naive. He is actively conquering kingdoms and he is carrying them into captivity. This isn't just big talk because it actually happened in history. Carnal warfare uses bullets and bombs, blood and terror, but there are more powerful weapons, spiritual weapons, mighty in God. They go after the kingdom of Satan, which is behind and underneath the kingdoms of this world. And by the time we get to John's book of Revelation in 64 A.D., less than 10 years after Paul writes 2 Corinthians, here's what John says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Now then, let's consider some application of this text to us and our circumstances. We still live in a world of false philosophies that seek to take us captive and to take our children captive. That's what we've been talking about, being cheated by philosophy. The wind of all kinds of doctrines swirl around us and some even reach hurricane force with the same devastating effects. The soldiers of Jesus as soldiers of Jesus, and as we mount a counter-attack with the converting message of Jesus Christ, when we do this, we will inevitably encounter terrible opposition and scorn. They do have strongholds. They do have high places. They have captured political positions and offices and schools and academia and media and much more. And this was true in the first century as well. This is not unique to us. But God is mightier than men. Paul had already written to the Corinthians in his previous letter and said this, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom didn't know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul 
will remind the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 3 and 4, just a little after our passage today, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live, shall live with him by the power of God toward you. What power on earth is greater than the power to resurrect the dead? Unbelievers are entrenched behind their walls, behind their uh, strongholds. From their high places, they look down on us just as the Edomites did against the descendants of Jacob. Remember us working through the book of Obadiah? You remember that exchange in that one-chapter book of the Old Testament at the very beginning? It says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, the high places, right? Whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says Jehovah. This is why God preserved the historical record of what happened to the Edomites so that we would remember when we face similar circumstances. We are surrounded by people who live in a great fortress of self-sufficiency. They don't need your God or his Christ, and they have no time for your church. They are too sophisticated to listen to your message because they are in a high fortress and they see you as deplorables. They are full of intellectual pride and conceit. Their philosophy either excludes God altogether or else supplies a very watered-down version of God who approves of their every thought and desire. But the weapons of our warfare still overcome these bulwarks of unbelief because they are mightier in God because they are mighty in God. And let me just stop and emphasize. I said, look, the weapons of the warfare of the world are bombs and bullets and guns and terror. Ours is the love of God. Ours is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ours is the gospel that conquers, that turns enemies into friends. That is a powerful, powerful message. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Indeed, every creature gives an account. The person in their high tower has dug in and with their philosophies have surrounded themselves with a wall of resistance, often very hardened. Nevertheless, the Christian seeks to rescue them from this false refuge. They have placed their confidence, in, for example, in ever-changing science. 
Their philosophy is that the only thing we can ever know comes through scientific thought, and that's all. If you can turn it green, if you if you can turn it green in a test tube, they'll accept it. Everything else they will not see. And no one is blinder than he who will not see. As the Apostle Paul puts it, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Their philosophy shuts their mind and closes their heart against all revelation of God. The Bible is a book of fables, or else it's a book that doesn't matter. It is old-fashioned. It is out of date. And since they believe in evolution and progress, the latest thing is always superior to the old thing. I don't know about you, but we've tried some of those new and improved items from the grocery store that wound up in our trash can. Our world worships at the shrine of science. Well, then you Christians must be anti-science, right? Of course, true science in its proper context studies the works of God, and when it does, it can be good. This is what God called Adam and Eve to do when he told them to exercise dominion over the earth. But when God is removed from science and from that scientific equation, then science often ends up with the wrong answer. And we start to worship and we start to serve the creature rather than the creator. And so the unbeliever shuts his eyes and he will not see what God has done, but God has Pull the curtain back to expose the wizard, the little man behind the curtain. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth's right before them, but they hold it down. Because that which may be known about God is manifest in them. Remember, they're made in the image of God. It's right there, plain to see. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, from the very beginning, he says, from the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that have been made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God in their heart of hearts, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. W.A. Criswell, one of the former pastors of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, had the privilege of hearing him preach when I was in high school, and he was quite the preacher. He says this, a person says, I'm not going to read what God has said. I'm not going to study the revelation of God about himself. I'm not going to think it out for myself. I'm going to probe down there in the earth and I'm going to look at the rocks, and I'm going to seek out there under those logs and stones, and I'm going to look at the bugs 
and I'm going to study all about zoology and the animals that walk this earth, and then I'm going to look around me, and by the time I formulate and summarize all the scientific knowledge, then that will be my Lord and God. Ah, and I tell you, the God you'll come out with. You'll come out with a God that is just like those stones you're looking at and just like those bugs you're studying and just like those four-footed and two-footed animals that you're following after and just like all the fauna and the flora and geology you'll find in this world, you don't elevate, you don't rise, you don't find him who made it, not in those things. The only way we ever know God is through the self-revelation of God. You can't be smart enough to find him out. He has got to reveal himself, and that revelation lies in the heart and in the mind that is in Christ Jesus, who is writ large, who is exposed, who is revealed here on the pages of the sacred book. If I don't find him here, if I don't find him Excuse me, if I don't find him here, I don't find him. If I can't know him here, I can't ever know him. Never, never, never. Up there in his high tower of self-sufficiency, the unbeliever picks the piece of Christianity and every other philosophy and picks pieces of Christianity and every other philosophy and faith and constructs his own fortress. A little of this, a little of that. Ultimately, he is his own God who will determine good and evil for himself. He can figure this out, he thinks. You remember the story of Dagon, 1 Samuel 5? That's exactly the place in Scripture where Marinelle and I are in our daily Bible reading. I love this story, and it illustrates what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon, their god. And when the people of Ashdod arose in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on, his, on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. So they set him back upright. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. When I was in the jewelry business many years ago, in my early 20s, we had a little uh, ivory idol of some sort that was shipped from home office to sell. It was just a carved piece. And as I laid out the display, I always made sure it was laying on its face. And I had a cross, uh, a gold cross that was there in front of it. So that's just an aside. <laughs> All the Dagons of this world, every last one of them, 
will have the same ending. There is one true God, one true Savior. And that God's name is Jehovah God, and that one Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor is there salvation in any any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What are these weapons of our warfare? Well, in Ephesians 6, Paul gives us this famous description of the Christian soldier. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, that's the army of God, right? And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought. Great summary of the weapons of our warfare. Here's how these amazing and powerful weapons work. Just a sample. John 12:32 Jesus said, "And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." We've got to show them Jesus. We got to show them Jesus and how we live and talk and act and how we work and how we serve in how we are married, and how we raise our kids, and how we worship, and how we sing. That's how we lift Jesus up for the world to see. We're the body of Christ. It's us. Romans 10, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
John 16, 8, and when, the, and when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In other words, we have to be dependent upon, rely upon the power of God Himself. We're not out there, we're not out here wringing our hands because so-and-so got elected. Or this happened in the streets of Portland or whatever. God is on His throne and we are the people of God We have prayer, we have the Word of God, we have one another, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the most powerful weapons on earth. They are everlasting in their effect. Do we see an example of this? Let me just give one. Look at the proud and confident Rabbi Saul who was a young man and a member of the Sanhedrin who had studied under the famous Gamaliel. This is the same man who described what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Quote, I could not see for the glory of that light. Being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus, and he would soon write in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Basically, Jesus said, somebody said, you see Saul, he's out there killing Christians and trying to stamp out the Christian faith. And Jesus said, arrest that man. Who would have ever imagined, in fact, later when Paul, his name is changed. When he comes around, the Christians are afraid of him. He has a reputation. They know he's up to no good. And so others had to testify that it was safe. It was okay. He's been changed by the power of God. And so the weapons of our warfare are spiritual weapons. As Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. And then Paul gives us this powerful image of bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Most of you have seen ancient inscriptions and pictures from Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon that depict conquered people. And you see a long string of captives being paraded through the city. At the Roman Forum, the Arch of Titus, at the Arch of Titus, there is a portrayal of Titus leading a great triumphal procession in his chariot and his olive branch crown of victory. And behind him is a long train of captives after the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the kind of image Paul wants his readers to see as they think about Christ as the ultimate conqueror and victor. Bringing every thought captive, every idea, every philosophy into captivity to the obedience of Christ. As I look at you this morning, I see a string of captives. Christ has taken you and you belong to him. You are bound by his love And you are not yours anymore. You're not your own. He has your mind. He has your thoughts. He has your understanding. You're thinking about him because you are a captive of Jesus Christ. 
That is perfect freedom. That's the sure and eternal liberty. For he himself said, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, many of us must confess that we find ourselves anxious over the political and social turmoil of our day, and yet we know that your people have faced much worse in the past, and that even today many of our brothers and sisters in Christ live under much more serious threats and dangers than we can even imagine. And yet we also know that your gospel and your kingdom have mysteriously advanced, conquering hearts, families, nations, and cultures. Indeed, your people have been mighty in you. Help us to see with eyes of faith, even as our father Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians, what do you believe? We believe in God, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. You may be seated. As the Apostle Paul marched into Rome, the seat of pagan culture and power and opposition to the gospel, he said this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we have been given stealthy but surprisingly powerful weapons for our warfare. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, uh, excuse me, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's another passage 
where Paul addresses Timothy regarding Christian warfare. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul has a long view, a long vision of what's to come. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Amen. All your works praise you, O Lord, and your saints give thanks unto you. We open our mouths to bless your holy name. We are especially grateful today for the kind providence you have shown us in times of delight and in times of trial. Indeed, you have worked all things together for our good in Christ. We gratefully receive your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have brought us one by one to participate in this covenant community of your saints, to live, love, and serve together. We thank you for all the faithful saints who have gone before us, for fathers and mothers, uncles and aunts, friends and neighbors, pastors and elders, as well as strangers, for all those who have adorned the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have served and prayed, who have lived and proclaimed, who have sacrificed and died. For here we sit as the benefactors of your grace and your saints. Keep us, we pray, that we might have the blessing of participation in the work of your kingdom, that the generation to come might know your works, the children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget your works. Lord, you have made us a people before you. You've given us a name. You've given us a place to worship. You've given us a people to serve and love. You have fed us and built us up. You've given us friends and families. You have provided food and shelter. You have given us great cause to rejoice and celebrate in Christ. Bless now our rest and our warfare in this new week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.